You notice how we've begun today uh, with wine. Do not be full of wine, but uh, be filled with the Spirit. And now we've ended with the disciples apparently being full of wine. What are we to make of all of this? Well, there, uh, there is a really wonderful sounding lie that goes around in our culture. And you've heard it before, especially if you have children or grandchildren, if you've ever seen pretty much any Disney movie that's ever been made, you've heard it. And it's if, if you go out and you're living your life and, and you're, you're doing your best, you can be anything that you want to be. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Ha- have you told people that before? Probably, because there's some good truth contained in there, isn't it? You feel that you have limits, but often you can go farther than you think. You can be more than you thought. You can do more than you thought, whatever it would be. But when we make it absolute, you can do anything that you want. Well, we've, we've told a lie. We have. And I, I want you to think about this for a moment. We do have real limits. Uh, some of them are, are limits both that we, we set for ourselves that we can overcome, but others of them are, are just true facts about who we are and what we do. Uh, how many of you, if I asked you to come up and give a sermon next week, would probably stop coming to church? Yeah, yeah. And l- let me tell you something. Uh, you can get a lot of training, right? There, there you can go to a seminary, you can spend lots of money, you can talk to great preachers, and, and to a certain extent, you can hone those skills as a preacher. You could learn how to, to give a sermon and give a message, but if you're not gifted for it in one way or another, first of all, you don't want to do it, and secondly, uh, that may not be your call. See, that's, that's where we bring the Lord into all of this, right? Because the Lord has created us. He has created us intentionally and on purpose. And he has created us for the lives he has planned for us. He didn't create us to be whatever we wanted to be. He created us to be whatever he wanted us to be. That's not a bad thing. I know it sounds uh, at first sort of like, well, why is God limiting me? What if I really want to do X, but God says never. You can never do X. You have to do Y instead. Well, I think there we can trust in a couple of things. First of all, that God really loves us. And secondly, that he's really wise. Not just wise, but wiser than, than you and I really are. Is there anyone in here who can peer 30 years into the future and know what their lives are going to be like, what the world is going to be like? But see, all that information, God, God knows. It's good that God directs our lives in some way. And secondly, God doesn't say, I'm going to gift you for this, but I'm never going to let you do it. He doesn't say, I'm going to uh, put this passion in your heart that I forever want you to not live. That's not the God that we serve. So, yes, I know that we have some fear, but I'm not sure it's always justified. Now, where am I going with all of this? Where am I going with all of this? See, the reason that it's such a big deal that we ought not to go around and tell people you can be whatever you want to be is it means if you don't become whatever you want to be, then it's your fault and you have failed. Did you ever think about it that way? What are we telling our children? You can be whatever you want to be. We're telling them it's all up to you. It's all about you. You sort it out. You've got the strength. You've got the ability. 
So one of two things happens. Either, either as we go along, we will become frustrated in certain places in our lives where we didn't achieve all of our dreams and we'll either sink into despair and say, well, that's all my fault. I guess I was just never enough. Or the alternate thing is we will look around and blame everyone around us except ourselves. We'll say, well, I can be whatever I want to be, so if I'm not whatever I want to be, it must be somebody else's fault. One of my favorite comic strips of all time is Calvin and Hobbes. And my favorite Calvin and Hobbes strip that I've ever read has Calvin, he, uh, he has this great disappointment. I forget exactly what it is. He breaks his cool motorized beanie or some such thing. And he is so angry and frustrated in the last frame. He's got this really angry, sad face. And he says, this is everybody's fault but mine. <laughs> that's what we're in danger of becoming. Because God didn't tell us, you should be whatever you want to be. He said, you should be all that I want you to be. But now we've got another problem, don't we? Who is everything that God wants you to be? Does anyone here live up to that standard? Does anyone in here do only good things all the time? Is anyone in here only kind all the time? You know, actually, we're, we're kind of different than that, aren't we? Often, uh, we know the right things to do, the good things to do, and, and we don't do them. And we do them not knowing that we're not doing the good stuff. Uh, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for my message. And, you know, my wife and I never argue. Uh, but if we did, they might go something like this. So you can decide whether or not I'm telling the truth about all of this. Uh, we get, you know, you start to have some fight over something or other, right? Well, I think we should do that. No, I think we should do this. Or you don't, you know, take care of me in the way that I want. Or, you know, you're, you're taking care of me too much. Or whatever it is. And, and you, you start to fight over this thing. And there comes a point in your conversation where something pops into your head. And you think, ooh, I really want to say that. I really want to say that. Because it would just be the blow that I've been waiting to strike. Right? It's, it's all of this frustration packaged up, and, and I can just I can land it on this person and say, here's everything I've ever been upset about with you in my whole life. And I've always you know, wanted to say it at least just a little bit. Now, if I, if I do say it, I will have a very short-lived satisfaction. It'll last as long as it takes my spouse to respond. You know that, don't you? If I don't say it, and if I actively do my best to love my spouse, my wife, my husband, whoever it is, and say, okay, what's important to you here? How can I love you? How can I serve you? We are on our way to a better marriage. How many of you still say the first thing anyway? You don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise them for you. I do. Not always, but sometimes. I know the right thing to do. I know the wrong thing to do. And I choose the wrong thing anyway. See, God knows that about us too. God knows that our problem as human beings is not primarily that we don't know the right things to do. Although sometimes it is. He knows that our problem is even when we know the right things to do, we still make the wrong choices. Not every time, but it happens. 
There's something broken deep inside of us, and it needs fixing. It can't be fixed just by more knowledge, right? Oh, well, now I, I know the rules, and I'll just follow those. It can't be uh, fixed just by trying harder, because the power isn't entirely inside of me. See, we're kind of sad creatures where we are. We have a picture of who we'd like to be, the world that we'd like to make. And especially, I think, in these days, we have a cynicism about, whenever, uh, about whether or not we can ever get there. This is borne out in a number of different uh, polls that you might see floating around out there. For the first time in American history, more people think our best days are behind us than are before us. And our only responses, it seems like, are either despair, this is my fault, we can never get there, or anger, this is everyone's fault but mine. But God shows us a better way. And it's the way of the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about. See, Pentecost, we read that passage out of the book of Joel. And it's looking forward to the people of Israel. They've been conquered by their enemies. They're coming back into the promised land, but nothing is the way that it was before. And they're saying, if only God would come and he would smite all the enemies and he'd lift us up, then everything would be great. And God says throughout the book of Joel, you need to understand that the judgment that's coming at the end of time, it, it's not just for your enemies. It's for everyone who has participated with the evil ways of this world. And oh, by the way, do you think that you might have participated, O oh, Israel? Don't desire the day of the Lord like, well, that's going to solve all of my problems when God comes and kills all the people I don't like. Because you might get caught up in it too. God says, I have a different vision. I have a different vision. I have a vision where one day your young men will have visions. That, if you stop and think about that for a minute, isn't that what young men and women do? They look to the future and they say, there's something good out there that I want to get to. And there's an excitement and a vitality, a vitality and, and life in young people that, that seems to fade in some ways as we get older. Young people are all about possibilities. Young men dream, uh, see visions of what could possibly happen. But then I love where it goes next. Your old men will dream dreams. This isn't, of course, just about the old men. It was written to a, a patriarchal society. It was written to in a language in which there was gender in the words themselves. And so by old men, they really mean everybody. It was an inclusive word, even if it doesn't sound very inclusive in the 21st century. So you can, if you want, you can make a note in your Bible. Your old men and your old women will dream dreams. How exciting is that? Because it seems like dreams and visions belong to the young, doesn't it? But dreams and visions in God's calculus, in God's future, belong to people no matter their age. It's a good future that God has planned. And so we find the disciples uh, in Acts chapter 1. By the way, we're not going to finish this message this week. We're going to continue next week. So we'll see how far we get today. 
But we see uh, Jesus' disciples, the 11 remaining uh, disciples of the inner core of 12. And of course, there are a number of other followers of Jesus that were outside of that inner core, but were no less followers of Jesus for that. But Jesus speaks to the remaining 11, and this is what he says. He says uh, that he appeared to them after his resurrection over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is about to leave. He's with the disciples 40 days after his resurrection. Then he ascends into heaven. But just before he goes, he tells the disciples, don't go anywhere. I want you to wait. I want you to wait. And so that's what the disciples do. They wait. How long did they wait? Did they wait an hour? They wait until dinner? Or maybe the next day? No, Jesus left him alone for like a week and a half. I find that so interesting. And, and, and the book of Acts just kind of passes over it a, a little bit. Just kind of says, Jesus says, wait. And so the disciples sat around on their duffs for about 10 days for whatever was going to happen next. What in the world is going on? Why is God not just like, Jesus leaves, now everyone gets the Holy Spirit, and let's get on with it. What's the deal with the 10 days? Well, let me tell you, I don't think the text says clearly this is exactly what it's about. But I think we can draw something out of this for ourselves today. See, we as followers of Jesus Christ today no longer wait for the Holy Spirit. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are already Holy Spirit people. We don't have the tongues of flame like the video said but we do have Jesus, we do have the Spirit in our hearts, who is the presence of Jesus to us, and we do show fruit of that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. You've already got that going on. But I want you to think about the large ways that God works in your life here for a moment. How many of you, when something hard happens. And you go to God and you say, God, I need help with this. How many of you get what you ask for the next moment? Anybody? It does happen sometimes. Sometimes God says, yeah, I was just waiting for you to ask. Here it is. Here is the, the strength that you were asking for to deal with that hard time at work or that hard time in your marriage. Here is the healing that you needed for your body so that you could live another day. I know I have a uh, uh, my grandma, Grandma Hodge, many, many years ago, she was very sick for much of her life. Uh, and one time, one of her many hospital visits, she was in uh, her hospital bed and uh, she was taking medicine and it wasn't clear, I think, whether she was going to live or not. And as she's sitting in her bed alone, an angel appeared to her and said, Lorraine, if you continue your treatment, you will die. But if you give it up, you will live. So the doctors came back, you know, sometime later. She said, I don't want any more treatment. The doctor, you know, of course, well, but you need treatment. Nope, I don't want any more treatment. That's that. And she got better, and she lived. She lived many more years. Sometimes God acts in that way, right? 
But most of the time, I think he acts in different ways. He acts by saying, you've got a period of waiting to do. Got a period of waiting to do. And I want you to take that, first of all, as encouragement. That when God doesn't answer immediately, it's not because he hasn't heard you. It's not because he isn't going to answer your prayer. But it's because he's got a bigger plan with what's happening. And he's going to do something with those 10 days or with those 100 days or 10 years or however long it takes. He's going to be at work. And he's going to deliver to you exactly what you need when you need it. The fact that God asks us to wait is not God saying no. Because the Holy Spirit did come 10 days later in a pretty spectacular way. But I think that naturally leads to another question, doesn't it? What do we do while we're waiting? What do we do while we're waiting? I think the Bible is full of examples of what we do while we're waiting. First of all, we have the example right here out of the book of Acts. So the apostles, uh, they, uh, Jesus tells them to wait. He ascends into heaven. And the apostles are looking into the sky so first of all, let's be clear. Heaven is not the sky. It's not like Jesus is going, I'm taking the elevator to heaven or something. This is a metaphor in most every way. Jesus may have gone up into the sky, but it was only to uh, symbolize that he was actually going to a different place altogether, a higher and better sort of place he was going uh, to be with his Father in heaven. But the disciples are staring into the sky going, Seriously? <laughs> Is that it? That's all? And then a couple of angels appear to them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I don't know if they're dressing it up a bit. Like, you guys look ridiculous. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. That part is over, but it's coming again. So now get on with your life is the implication. So the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where they'd been with Jesus, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What did they do while they were waiting? They prayed. They prayed. But that's not all that they did. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He says, basically, uh, Judas, the scripture said he'd come, that he would betray Jesus, and he would die. And now he needs someone to take his place. So let's choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. Let me explain Peter's th uh, thinking to you for just a moment. Jesus chose, he said, anyone who wants to, follow me. And we know there were at least 120 followers of Jesus at the time this happened. But Jesus chose 12 specially. Now, why did he do it? Was it because he said, ooh, those 12 are really great? Well, if you've read the Gospels, you know that's absolutely not why. Those 12 were as clueless as anyone else. They were as clueless as you and I would have been if we were following Jesus in the first century. 
But here's what Jesus was doing. Does the number 12 ring any bells as something significant for the nation of Israel for you? There were 12 tribes in Israel. And so when Jesus went out and he chose 12 disciples, it was a visual way of saying, I want you to see that God is doing something new for all of Israel. And in a sense, Jesus was even saying, me and my followers, we are the new Israel. We are God's true chosen people. And that wasn't a barrier to anyone. He wasn't saying the rest of you stink. He was saying the rest of you join. And the disciples were saying, we need to keep that going. We need Jesus' work to continue. We need people to understand that God is making a new Israel out of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so they do something that seems very strange to us. They nominate two men. They say, well, who would be good replacements? And they come up with these two guys. Uh, who's, the first one is Barsabbas, not Barabbas. I know these names are hard to keep up with, but Barsabbas and Matthias. And they pray, Lord, you know everyone's heart. So show us which of the two you have chosen. And then they almost literally roll the dice to find out which one God would have. This was the beginning of Las Vegas. No, I'm just kidding. This was actually an approved way for God's people to figure out God's will. This happened all throughout the Old Testament. You would draw lots. That's what they did. They put a couple of things in a little jar and they pulled them out and they're like, oh, Matthias, he's the new one. And they said, this is evidence that God has chosen him. I don't know, if you go all the way back to the, the books of Samuel, there is a, a situation where Saul is fighting the Philistines, and he makes this vow that no one will eat today until I am revenged on my enemies. It was a stupid vow to make, but he made it anyway. Now, Jonathan, his son, had never heard about this vow. So Jonathan finds some honey on the ground, and he goes, I'm going to eat some of that honey, because we've been pursuing the Philistines all day, and I'm hungry, and I'm tired. And he eats it, and the Bible says his eyes got bright, because he was refreshed by eating something. But then things start to go badly for Israel. And Saul says, someone must have sinned. And so they cast lots between all of the soldiers. And it says, the lot fell to Saul and his son, Jonathan. And then they took lots again, and the lot fell to Jonathan. And Saul said, what have you done? And Jonathan said, I did what I did because I didn't hear about the stupid vow that you made. What is wrong with you? That's my own translation. And what we get out of this is, again, this took place all the time. God spoke to Israel in this particular way. But you know what's really interesting here in the book of Acts? Is this is the last time in the Bible the lots are ever taken. It's the last time anyone ever cast lots. And you know why? It's because from this point on, the Holy Spirit will show the church where to go, and who to choose, and what to do, and who to be. The Holy Spirit will do it. But as we get back to the original question, what do we do while we're waiting those 10 days for God to show up? You just be faithful. That's all. You just be faithful. That's what the disciples did. They went into the upper room and they prayed, God, we don't know what in the world to do next. We're just going to take that to you. Show us where to go. Show us what to do. Show us who to be. Send your Holy Spirit. 
It's taken forever, God. Please send the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, they said, well, what's important to God? Well, you know, Jesus left 12. We, we need to be 12 again. They, with the help of, of God's guidance, they, they did that. They took the lot. Some commentators say that they were being presumptuous or that they shouldn't have done this, that Paul was really the true 12th disciple that was coming along. Let me tell you, I don't think that's anywhere in the text. I'm going I'm to stake a claim on that one. The disciples were just being faithful. And that's enough. That's enough for 10 days. It's enough for 100 days. It's enough for 10 years. So let me give you one example. Uh, again, from the book of Samuel. David. Saul was a bad king. And Saul broke faith with God. And so God said, I'm going to choose a new king. He sent the prophet Samuel to a man named Jesse in Bethlehem. And he said, he showed Jesse David. And he said, that's the new king. And so Samuel anointed David. He poured the oil over his head. He said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Now, I know a lot of us would say, it's so good to know the future that God has planned out for me. If God would only show me what's coming next. But let me tell you, in David's case, it made his life harder, not easier. Because if David was thinking things through, he would have said, well, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's already a king in Israel. And I don't know if you've thought this through, but if he hears that you've anointed me king, that's going to cause some problems for me. And that's exactly what happened. Because at first, Saul entered David's service because, you know, he, he defeated Goliath and God was obviously blessing him. But then Saul becomes jealous and he starts to hunt him and he starts to try and kill him. See, God said, this is your future, David, but that didn't make David's life any easier. It made it harder. So what did David do? David was faithful. He served God's chosen king, even when it cost him something, even when it was dangerous for him. He stayed in Saul's service. Then when Saul started to hunt him to kill him, David ran off, and other men started to gather around him, other men that were uh, disaffected or were in trouble or sometimes probably had caused some trouble and weren't really the, the, the kind of guys you'd normally hang out with, but they came to David, and God made something good out of them. And what did David do with all of these men? Did he stage a coup, a revolution, because God had, had anointed him king? No. He went around, and he did all the things that Saul was neglecting. He fought Israel's enemies and defeated them and gave them peace, even though it meant David would have no peace. David, he had a couple of opportunities where Saul was out pursuing him, and, and Saul and his, his forces were right there next to David. In one case, David was hiding in a cave, and Saul came in because he needed a place to do you know, the things that you need to do in caves. And David's men said, there's Saul. Kill him, and this will all be done. And David said, no, I'm not going to do that. He actually sneaks up to Saul and he cuts off a corner of his robe while he's doing whatever he's doing. And then he feels bad about that. This is God's anointing. I can't do, I can't disrespect him in any way. That's God's business to sort out how and when I'm going to be king. That's God's business. My business is to be faithful. 
And Saul, uh, David came out to Saul a little bit later, and he, he showed him the corner of his robe. He says, hey, does this look familiar, King Saul? And Saul's like, oh my gosh, that's my robe. How did you get that? Again, this is Ian's translation. And David says, I am not your enemy. And Saul went home. David was faithful. See, what do we do while we're waiting for God to show up in our lives? During those 10 days, we just be faithful. Just do love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. See, that's God's primary call on your life. God's primary call on your life is not, well, here's the job I'm going to have you do, or I'm going to make you a pastor, or I'm going to make you a missionary, or I'm going to you know, make you a CEO, or I'm going to make you, you know, a fry cook. None of those are God's primary call on your life. God's primary call on your life is to be faithful, to follow Jesus. Here's the last thing. I, I got to get to this today, otherwise it'll hardly be Pentecost. You got to at least get to Pentecost, all right? So when the day of Pentecost came, they've been waiting, they've been faithful, and they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Because here's, here's maybe the most important Peace that we're going to talk about today. We started by saying that phrase, you can be whatever you want to be, is a lie. When we take it to, I am strong enough to have everything, to be everything that I need to be. It's a lie and it will lead us either to despair or to hatred for the people around us. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit will make us whatever God has chosen for us to be without fail. And that's what happens for the disciples. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to the disciples, he said, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, but he didn't say, he didn't just leave it there. This is, this is what he says. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, that's the Holy Spirit, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They say, Lord, are you finally going to you know, finish all the work? And he says, it's not for you to know, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in all in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit came, what did they get power to be and to do? To be witnesses. See, there are people from all over the world who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Some of them were Jews who just lived in other places. Some of them were proselytes, which means they had fully converted to Judaism. A lot of men chose not to do that for reasons. And so they became God-fearers instead. God-fearers. They were Jews and they were Gentiles. They came from everywhere to this one place. And some of them were like me when I went to Germany, where it's like, I'm so sorry, I do not sprechen Sie Deutsch. I sprechen Sie English. But God filled them with the Holy Spirit, 
and they started speaking everyone else's language so that they could be God's witnesses. But I want you to see something else, and this is what I'm going to end on this morning. There's the violent wind that came from heaven, and then there were what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That's not just an idle, like, what would be really cool for the Holy Spirit to come as? Like wind or maybe an earthquake. How about fire? Everyone likes fire. No. How did God speak to Moses when he first met him? Out of the burning bush. When Abraham and God made the the covenant with each other where Abraham said, I'm going to go, and God said, I am going to bless you and give you descendants through whom I will bless the whole world. And they had this covenant ceremony one night. Do Do you remember? This is a little more obscure. It's not the part of the story you remember the best, but do you remember what God showed up as in that ceremony? A flaming torch. See, when God shows up, one of the key, key symbols that we have, because remember, it says like tongues of fire, not as tongues of fire. But fire is one of those key symbols. So see, there's something more going on than God just like putting words in people's mouths that they can speak to others. God has really come to live in his people. And I, I didn't, I'm stealing this particular illustration this morning from Tim Keller and his Pentecost sermon. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have become a burning bush as well. You are a burning bush. God lives in you by the Holy Spirit. See, we are, now this is my own illustration. We are the fuel, but the Holy Spirit is the fire. You ever seen wood sitting in a wood pile? Nothing interesting about that, is there? It's only potential until the fire touches it. And the fire starts burning. And you can do all sorts of good things with it, like get warm and make s'mores. Folks, we're the kind of people that the world can get warm by and make s'mores over. Because we are burning bushes by the Holy Spirit. We could never do it on our own. We could never be the presence of God to the world if it was just about us becoming whatever we wanted to be. When the Holy Spirit comes, well, then we have everything that we need to be all that God has called us to be. Number one, to be faithful in every part of our lives. And number two, to take the message of the cross and of who God is and how deeply he loves our broken world and how much he wants to make it right with the flame of the Holy Spirit.